Samuel the Lamanite's prophecies regarding the birth of Christ are fulfilled, and the Nephites undergo many violent trials during his lifetime. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson is Nephi, 3rd Nephi, chapter 1 through 7, Lift Up Your Head and Be of Good Cheer. We have a listener question this week. Charlotte asks, As we learned this week about Samuel preaching about the graves being opened, I understood that all who lived before Christ to have been resurrected after his resurrection. Is that not true, or am I mistaken? If this is true, I wondered how we have remains and archaeological evidence of people pre-Christ. I almost feel silly, silly for asking, but wouldn't a skeleton be part of the resurrection, therefore? It would be no more. Uh, that's a wonderful question. Thank you, Charlotte. So, in Alma chapter 40, we have Alma discussing with his son Corianton the restoration of all things, how we will have restored unto us that which we put out during our lifetime. And as part of that discussion, what Alma says to his son Corianton is, the, well, he, he describes a personal revelation that he's had from an angel about the resurrection, about the physical resurrection. In verse 20, so we're in Alma chapter 40, verse 20, he says, I do not say for sure, but I give it as my opinion that those people who lived before Christ will be resurrected at the time of Jesus Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven. He qualifies that with the word righteous. So, Right away, we know that there will be many, many, many people who will, who will not be resurrected. Uh, even Alma himself, who has this opinion, and he, he has identified it as his speculation, right? But he says, uh, I, I give it as my opinion that the righteous will be resurrected. So even by Alma's account, there will be many, many people who will not be resurrected. So accounting for uh, skeletons in the earth, ar- archaeological remains— is not difficult knowing that what Al- what Alma was saying was that those people who deserve to be part of the first resurrection would be the only ones to be resurrected at that time. The way that Samuel uh, put it, and actually the way we have it in the Bible as well, is that there were many of the graves of the saints which were opened. So we have unequivocal testimony, both in the Book of Mormon and in the Bible, that many graves were opened. But uh, it's also important to realize that what Alma said was, I don't know exactly when everyone will, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, uh, when everyone will be resurrected. I do give it as my opinion that the right, the graves of the righteous will be opened. And his opinion was correct in large part. He, if, if you were to say it in that way, it would be 100% correct. The graves of the righteous were opened. Now, does that mean that all graves of all righteous people that had lived from Adam up to Jesus Christ were opened, and that every single one of the people who fit that description were resurrected? I don't know that it does. Um, logically, if you look at it, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, it, it could mean that. We, we can't preclude it, but we also can't say unequivocally that the scriptures teach that every single righteous person, every all of the saints up to the time of Jesus Christ were resurrected. So that's an important distinction. And basically what it means is that while many people and many believers in Christ were resurrected, uh, God ultimately is the one who decides when the event of resurrection is appropriate in each of our eternal progressions. I I would say in our lives, but uh, obviously resurrection comes after our lives. And so God, God figures out the point in our eternal progression when that event is appropriate. And undoubtedly, there were many who for whom that was appropriate at the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or just after it. And there were maybe some who, for whom it was not appropriate, even though they may have been righteous. In my opinion, the scriptures sort of leave that choice up to us, whether we want to believe that all righteous saints at the time of Jesus Christ were resurrected, or whether there were some who were not. And because we have that left to our interpretation, it's not difficult to account for archaeological remains. I hope that answers your question, Charlotte. If you have a question for which you would like a scriptural response, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. So that leads us into this week's lesson, which is 3 Nephi chapters 1 through 7. This, uh, these chapters are the bulk of the chapters, incidentally, that coincide with the time period that is represented in the Gospels in the New Testament. 
If you were to expand our material a little bit and go Third uh, Nephi chapters 1 through 10, then you would comprise the entire time period of the Gospels. Uh, the Gospels go from just before the birth of Christ to just after his ascension. In one case, in the book of John, we have uh, a couple of months later where John appears to the disciples near the Sea of Galilee. You'll recall that. But for the most part, the Gospels end at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 3 Nephi deal with the destruction around the time of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And so therefore, you know, that's actually just a very brief, those three chapters cover a very brief time period. Chapters 1 through 7 cover the entire life of Jesus Christ. And the most notable event, you'll remember that Samuel the Lamanite, we just read about him, he has foretold that there would be a certain day in which there, the nighttime would not be dark. In other words, with the way he called it, a day and then a night and a day as if there had been no night. And though the timeline was pretty clear, uh, it's interesting that the it, it only took five years for people who believed in the... Uh, I don't know that we can say all the people who believed, but anyway, many of the people who believed in the prophecy of Samuel had given up on it. And of course, the people who did not believe were using this as an opportunity to persecute those who did believe. It's also interesting that at this point, just before this sign is given, we have a notable disappearance from the people of Nephi. The prophet himself is just gone one day. Uh, we're going to say a little bit about this because uh, there are a couple of theories that I want to I want to uh, expose you to and uh, see what you think of them. But uh, remember, so I'm going to get I'm going to give you a few names so that we can keep things clear. We have Helaman the son of Alma, his son Helaman, who became a chief judge. That was what he was most notable for, and really what he was most notable notable for was being the father of these two prophetic missionaries, Nephi and Lehi. And we can call this Nephi, the son of Helaman II, we can call him Second Nephi, even though, uh, as we have evidence of in the book of Jacob, that the kings after the original Nephi, they were all called that as well, called Second, Third Nephi, etc. However, because we don't have records of any of those people, we can sort of ignore the fact that they had the same name. And we can call this Nephi the son of Helaman, we can call him Second Nephi. He, in turn, gave birth or uh, begat a son who eventually became the chief apostle at the time of the visit of Jesus Christ. So in A.D. 33 or 34 or 35, whenever it happened, uh, Nephi, third Nephi, was the chief apostle at that time. So second Nephi was this marvelous prophet who went among the, who had the vision of the, the murdered chief judge. He went among the Lamanites and was locked in prison and was, uh, they could not kill him and the prison doors were shaken down. That was second Nephi. So second Nephi was beloved among all the people. And just before the sign of Christ's birth has been given, he spent his whole life working towards this moment. In fact, on the day that Samuel the Lamanite gave this prophecy, he was there in Zarahemla, and he received all of, the, all of the people who believed in Samuel's prophecy, and they went unto him to be baptized. So he's been working for this day his entire life, and then on the day that it happens, or just before it, he's nowhere to be found. And it doesn't say like it did with Alma, that he went on a journey and then he just was never heard of again. It just says he was nowhere to be found. Uh, it's kind of interesting how he could just disappear like that. I do believe that God would protect him, uh, that he wasn't just killed by a Lamanite and then his body was hidden. Uh, I guess that's one thing we could could uh, conjecture based on the evidence that we have in the Book of Mormon. There is a book, and interest. I would probably have not have heard of this book. So interestingly enough, it's written by my cousin. Had it not been written by him, I probably never would have heard of it. But my cousin's name is Jeffrey D. Holt, and the book is called From the East. And the entire premise of the book is that it's a conjecture. Obviously, there's no evidence, but he, he writes the book about a what if. And the what if is, what if Second Nephi took his brother Lehi, took Samuel the Lamanite, and they became the wise men that we read about in the New Testament. And so it's just a book about an idea. It's not saying this is definitely what happened, but uh, he spends some time writing about how that could be true. And if it's true, what does it mean for the New Testament? Why would they have done this? How would they have done this? And uh, so 
I recommend that book to you. It's a short read. It's an interesting book, and uh, it's from the perspective of a believing Latter-day Saint. So I do believe there is plenty of room. Uh, A lot of you might be thinking, oh, I don't want to get into speculation. As we've already mentioned, there's plenty of room for speculation in the gospel. I indulge in it frequently here on the podcast, but I always preface my remarks by saying, hey, this what's coming up is speculation. Uh, you'll remember that Alma chapter 40, he says, I don't say as doctrine, but I do give it as my opinion that this will happen at the time of Christ's resurrection. So even Alma, the great prophet, Alma the Younger, uh, indulged in speculation. He he thought it profitable to guess when he didn't have the answer. So speculation is what happens with our uh, questions, right? The gospel is full of wonderful answers, but it's also full of unanswerable questions. And what we do with our questions is often just as important as as what answers we have. And so it can be very profitable to wonder about those questions that are not answered in the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean every question is worth exploring to its bitter end. However, uh, I do recommend that book to you, From the East by Jeffrey D. Holt. And the idea is that Second Nephi has disappeared from the land of Zarahemla so that he could travel back to Jerusalem He, in a way analogous probably to how Nephi constructed a boat. He constructed a boat through revelation from God, and we just don't have any record of it. It's an interesting idea. I have no idea if it's true. So that's that's chapter one. Nephi disappears, and he leaves his son, Nephi, no, we'll call him third Nephi. He leaves his son, third Nephi, in charge of the records, the relics, and also the people of God, the church of God. That is all in third Nephi chapter one. And the believing saints find themselves in uh, a very dangerous predicament because the decree goes out among all the wicked people that if the sign is not given on such and such a day and a date is set, then all of these believers, the people who have maintained their faith in spite of the fact that this sign was has not yet appeared, all of those people who have maintained their faith will be killed. Now, what Samuel said was five years will pass not away. The, the way I would interpret that is uh, if, the, if Samuel gave his talk on a certain date then five years from that date would would not pass away. Now, it also could be when people say, hey, this is going to happen five years from now, or this happened five years ago, they're often not saying it's five years to the day. If you take 365, add one day for a leap year that's going to be in there and multiply it by five, then that's the exact number of days it will be ago, right? If I say this happened five years ago, ago it could be within several months of that time. So that's what I imagine is going on here, is that the wicked people are saying, ah, it's been five years, or it's been close to five years, and it still hasn't, this sign still hasn't appeared. Therefore, you've been leading us astray this whole time. You've been following this false prophet. You've been claiming that you're better than us, and we're going to kill you. Now, when I imagine what the second, the reason I'm bringing all this up is, when I imagine what the second coming of Jesus Christ will be like, I look back to the first coming of Jesus Christ. That is, uh, I think, a terrific way to sort of envision what it will be like. And this is a very key event in that history. Those, All of those people who believe in Christ are being uh, condemned to die for their belief. Now, does that mean that I think that Christians will be put to death for being Christian before the second coming, or all Christians will? First of all, uh, this is already happening, happening, by the way. There is no more persecuted minority in the entire world than Christians. If you didn't know that, do a little bit of research and you'll see that it's true. Christians are being put to death for their belief all the time. However, do I think that, uh, for example, in Western societies that all Christians will be put to death? Maybe not. But what I do think is this is a great lesson for us to realize that persecution of people who believe in Christ for that belief in Christ will heighten before the coming of Christ. That is that is a belief that I have, uh, a very sincere and very firm belief that I have that that will happen. And in this particular case, they're facing the death penalty. I want to clarify something in the scriptures. I've always thought, every time I read this, I, I, I always thought that Nephi hears about this condemnation, this death sentence, and then on the day when everyone is going to be put to death, he goes out and prays, and then he receives a revelation. God says to him, and this is what happens, God says, uh, 
tonight, be of good cheer, because tonight will the sign be given, and tomorrow come I into the world. And I'd always assumed that the timing of that was all of these believers would have been killed the next day. If God hadn't come that very day, then all the believers would have been killed the next day. Reading it again this time around, I'm not so sure that that's how it occurred. What I read this time is, when Nephi heard about the death sentence, which is presumably with some time in advance, maybe a few weeks or even a couple of months in advance. As soon as the date was set for the execution, he goes out and prays. And that might mean that he got this sign, he got this revelation, and the birth of Christ occurred a little bit in advance of the planned execution. I think the text supports both interpretations, and so it's hard to say unequivocally which is true. But in any case, uh, Third Nephi goes out and prays, and he receives this marvelous revelation. And a lot of people have speculated from over the over the centuries of of the church's existence, and especially in the decades since more has been received about our pre-mortal life. When does the spirit inhabit the body? We believe undoubtedly believe that the that the spirit inhabits the body at some point before birth. And if you're a mother, if you've ever given birth, you probably believe that it gets in there at least by the third trimester because you feel that baby moving around. Uh, in this particular case, we learn that Jesus, I mean, Jesus, the, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, he is doing his work as God right up until the last moment. Does that mean he it was impossible for him to have inhabited his body before that point. Not necessarily, but it's interesting to think that uh, spirits inhabit the bodies at different times. We don't know exactly when that might be. But in this case, Jesus is still acting as God right up until the night before his birth because he is responding to this to this prayer by Third Nephi. He says, On this night will the sign be given, and tomorrow come I, not my father, not my son. You know, it's not Heavenly Father responding to to Nephi says, on the morrow come I into the world. So he receives an answer directly from Jehovah, who will become Jesus Christ. And sure enough, that night, even though the sun sets, everyone sees it go down, they don't experience any darkness. I did a little research to try to understand what could cause this. I think a lot of church members assume that this was a supernova. I know that that was my belief for a long time. So I, I did a little research into what a supernova does, and it actually is possible, uh, although we don't have any record of a star being that close to us. It is possible that if a star were close enough to us, that a star-going supernova would be bright enough to brighten the entire sky as if it were daytime. However, uh, generally the way supernovae work is they fade over the course of months. Uh, regular novae, which are not quite as bright as supernovae, they also take weeks at least to die down. So neither of these celestial phenomena are short-lived enough that only a single night would they appear brightly. So that's an interesting point. Uh, I did find out about an event that happened in Russia, in Siberian tundra, in a place called Tunguska in 1908. And this caused a great deal of brightness uh, throughout the night and lasted only a single night. Most people uh, now, most scientists now, kind of assume that this was either a comet or a meteorite striking the Earth. But no one knows because the explosion was huge and no one was around. It happened in the middle of Siberia. But the lights were seen as far away as Europe, as Western Europe, that night. And uh, so one possibility of this night uh, of day, night, and day, as if there had been no night, one possibility, one sci possible scientific explanation would be that there was a meteorite that struck the earth near there. Even into the sea would cause uh, a great eruption of steam, and the steam would be illuminated by energy. That would be one way in which the, the scientific explanation for this night could, could be made. Um, we have no idea, but the, it, but the most important thing to notice is that it would be impossible to predict that no matter the what the extent was of Samuel the Lamanite's scientific knowledge, to predict something like this to the day, five years out, would be absolutely impossible. So that was a miraculous prophecy, obviously, and then a miraculous event. Uh, and as you know, many times miracles are described as God making use of science, which we don't yet understand. So 
if if it were a meteorite, for example, or if it were some other celestial phenomenon, then this is God making use of science that we do not yet understand. On this occasion, the wicked are brought to a sudden realization that they have been that they have actually put themselves in opposition to God. It is undeniable in the heavens that and it would have been just as amazing to them then as it is to us today that Samuel could predict this event five years in advance. They realize there's no other explanation except that God was behind his utterance. And therefore, it was proof positive. They were staring proof in the face all night long. It wasn't as if it flashed and then faded. All night long, they were staring proof in the face that they had been putting themselves in opposition to the creator of the universe. The wonder, the shock, the amazement were such that they fell to the ground. All across the land, they fell to the ground, and they were forced to an internal reckoning, an immediate reckoning of the terrible things that they'd done. Of course, the believers rejoiced, not only because they weren't going to be killed, but because they knew that Jesus Christ had finally been born, the the greatest cause for celebration there has ever been, with the exception of his, his resurrection, obviously. And a new star also appeared, which was one of the foretold signs, and these two events were synchronized, which led me to believe, and I think leads a lot of people to believe, that they were necessarily connected. And obviously the timing of them is very coincidental if they weren't connected, but uh, nevertheless, that's not proof that they were connected. So it may be that the star in the heaven is, a, is one celestial event, the, the light all night long, another celestial event. And what follows is the first of two great conversion events that occur in this week's lesson. The first one is because now of the sign of Christ's birth. And this happens in the 91st year of the reign of the judges. Now, what's going to be interesting to you is that in both occasions, the it takes about five or six years for the Nephites to go from being almost completely converted to being dominated by Gadianton robbers or by wickedness. So the Gadianton robbers are receiving an influx within a few years, the Gadianton robbers are receiving such an influx to their numbers that they can threaten the actual existence of the Nephites. So over the next couple of chapters, what happens is that the Nephites have to gather into one place. The Gadianton robbers, now this is important, the Gadianton robbers are a 100% parasite society. They cannot exist, and this is this is brought home so forcefully in these chapters. They cannot exist without hardworking, honest, law-abiding Nephites to prey upon. Those Nephites have to be out there tilling the land, raising their herds, uh, weaving in cloth, and then, only then, can the Gadianton robbers have anything to steal. Otherwise, they have to subsist on hunting alone. And they do. They're able to subsist, subsist a little bit on hunting, but there comes a point at which there are just too many of them. Uh, there's an interesting exchange in chapter 3. There's an, uh, there's an exchange between Laconius, who's this righteous chief judge over the Nephites, and Gideonhi, the Gadianton leader. He writes him a letter, much like Amaron and Moroni, they exchanged letters. And also similarly, he has this same attitude. He says, after you have wronged our people so much, we're willing to forgive you if you'll just lay down your arms and give up the right to the government. I want to read uh, a little bit of this letter. So, first of all, in, we're in Third uh, Nephi chapter 3, and in verse 4, this is Gideonhi writing to Laconius, the chief judge of the Nephites. He says, I, knowing of their unconquerable spirit, having proved them in the field of battle, talking about his soldiers, knowing of their everlasting hatred towards you because of the many wrongs which ye have done unto them. Therefore, if they should come down against you, they would visit you with utter destruction. So his forces are so angry with the Nephites for the many wrongs they've done unto them. What are those wrongs? If we, if we fast forward a little bit here to verse 10, then we read, I write this epistle unto you, Laconius, and I hope that you will deliver up your lands and your possessions without the shedding of blood, that this my people may recover their rights and government, who have dissented away from you because of your wickedness in retaining from them their rights of government. So, that now let's follow the logic here of Gideonhi. First of all, he's admitting that his own people have, they have dissented away from the Nephites because of their wickedness in retaining their rights of self-government. So while his soldiers were still Nephites, 
they were angry with the Nephites because they didn't let the Gadianton robbers rule over them. Do you see how much sense this makes? It makes absolutely no sense. And then somehow, magically, because they've dissented from the Nephites and become Gadianton robbers and presumably taken upon themselves the mantle of Lamanites and uh, resurrected this ancient grievance that Laman had against Nephi, that he took away the government of the people. So now, not only have they voluntarily taken, given up the name and and identity of Nephites, voluntarily taken upon themselves this identity of Lamanites, which entitles them through this victim mentality to then rule over the Nephites, and then they have been wronged because the Nephites have for centuries taken away their own rights of self-government. But they used to be Nephites. So here they are, angry with all Nephites. They hate them so much because they've been wronged. And no wrong exists. It's self-evident. It's not even that Laconius has to make the case. It's that any person looking logically at his argument is utterly dumbfounded at how silly it is. And yet the entire society of, of the Ganeantans believe in it and they're motivated by it. This is the satanic power of the victimhood mentality. And what God has said many times in the scriptures, Second uh, Nephi, or yeah, Second Nephi chapter two, for one example, is that man is, and men and women obviously, are made to act and not be acted upon. God does not ordain anyone. It is not God's plan for anyone to remain a victim. Now, all of us are affected. We are victimized in one sense of the word by other people throughout our lives. People can treat us horribly. They, we can have our entire existence affected, our trajectory affected by them. However, there's a difference between victimhood in that sense and remaining a victim and, and adopting this victimhood mentality, which flies in the face of logic, uh, accrues to itself all kinds of undeserved privileges, and then inflicts upon other people uh, a domination and lack of liberty. So this was the ultimate goal of the Gadiantans was that the Nephites should give up their liberty. If you will, he says, uh, Gideonhai says to Laconius, if you will give up your liberty then we will make you equals with us. Now, again, his, his grievance made no sense, and now here his promise makes no sense. How can the Nephites give up their liberty and also be equal to the people that will take it away? These people are claiming that they want to be rulers over them, and at the same time saying, we'll make you equal with us. The third thing that is not said, which is also equally illogical, is that Gideonhai has already proven himself to be the leader of a parasite society. And economically, it just can't work. If every Nephite were to join the Gadianton robbers, how would they survive? He's already frustrated because his people don't have any productive industry whatsoever. They cannot keep themselves alive. The only way they can get food is to steal it. Who will there be to steal food from if all of the Nephites were to join the Gadiantons tomorrow? These are things which Gideonhai does not consider worth his time to deal with. Uh, nevertheless, they are glaring logical errors. These logical errors persist. Whenever Satan advances his uh, arguments of perpetual victimhood, these glaring logical errors still persist today. Nephite society, in here in 3 Nephi chapter 3 and 4, it very much resembles a person who is being, whose health, whose life is being threatened by a parasite. Their entire immune system has to rally, and basically all of the energy of their body has to go into the immune system because nothing else will be enough. In the case of the Nephites, they gather their entire population, both Nephites and Lamanites, and incidentally, the Lamanites stop being called Lamanites at this point because the the key differentiation between Nephites and Lamanites has always been their guiding philosophy. It hasn't been their descendancy from Laman or from Nephi. It's been whether they buy into one narrative, which is that God has created everything and he will save everyone if they choose to, to follow him, or the other narrative, the narrative of Satan, of Laman, which is that there's not enough. We have to fight against each other and we have to dominate and kill. And I'm kind of glad that they get their naming straight again because it's easier for us to consider that the, that the Nephites are the good guys and the Lamanites are the bad guys. That is generally the case. And in fact, I do believe that the Lamanite, if you were to say a Lamanite worldview, it's an evil one. A Nephite worldview, it's a good one. That doesn't mean that all Lamanites were evil. It doesn't mean that all Nephites were good. 
but it does mean that their their uh, governing worldview was defined in that way. And uh, so we're back to calling things by their right names, which I, I, I kind of like, makes it simpler. And incidentally, it doesn't change the nature of the, the Lamanites. They were the same. One day they were called Lamanites and the next day they were called Nephites, but they were the same people. They were just as righteous before. God loved them every bit as much under either name. So that that's not why it matters. It matters for my own simplicity, that's all. Uh, so here we are when finally now it's just a group of Nephites versus the people who want to kill them who are called Gadiantans. They surround them, they, siege, they besiege them, and they think that because we've surrounded them, they can't get new supplies, that eventually these Nephites will have to give up. The Gadiantans are deceived in this because they came. The, these Nephites came well prepared for seven to withstand seven years of this sort of treatment, and of course the Gadiantans are nothing like as well prepared, and they are forced to give battle. They're defeated repeatedly in battle. They never had the strength to actually defeat the Nephites. What they had was a willingness to kill innocent people who are separated from the group. That's what made facing this enemy so difficult. It's exactly like facing modern-day terrorists. Because they're willing to strike without warning and kill innocent people rather than show up in a uniform and fight a battle, then it's very hard to defend against them. The only way to do it is either do what these Nephites have done and gather all of the resources into one place, or uh, alternatively to strike preemptively. That Those are the only two ways to defeat this kind of an enemy. And uh, the leader of the Nephite forces, Gidgadoni, he already spoke against fighting preemptively. He said, God will not bless us if we, if we go and strike preemptively. We have to stay here where we can defend ourselves. So he obviously had some sort of inspiration in the matter. But in case you can't tell, there's already plenty of reflection upon modern day issues that we can read just in these four chapters. There's plenty that we can learn and apply to our own situation, both politically geopolitically and also personally, spiritually. And it's important to note that the way that the Nephites defeated the Gadiantans was not just by gathering themselves into one mass, but Laconius, uh, Gidgadoni, these two righteous men, along with third Nephi. So these prophets of God and all of the righteous saints were consistently and constantly inspiring the people to repent and to call upon God and to depend on his strength and to begin to reorder their lives in accordance with God's will. And it was this, and, and actually it says very clearly that they all understood that it was this repentance that gave them the victory. And because they had suffered so much, because their, uh, their situation was so dire, and it was an actual existential threat and it had been brought home to them over so much time, they are all brought low to the depths of humility. So right right away, we had our first conversion event shortly after the sign of Jesus' birth. We have our second conversion event here right after the Nephites almost are killed, almost are wiped off the map by these Gadianton robbers. And in fact, the, the book of 3rd Nephi here is very clear in the fact that there was no conflict among the entire people of Lehi, since he left Jerusalem, that was bloodier than this one. It was, it was. if you look at American history, it was like the Civil War. There's no bloodier war for American lives. There are bloodier wars that are worldwide, but for American lives, there's no bloodier war than the Civil War because it was fought among its own people uh, be between two armies entirely composed of Americans. The bloodiest war in American history, and this was the equivalent of that brother fighting against brother, the bloodiest war in Nephite history was this battle between Gideonhi and Gidgadoni. And it wasn't too uh, much later that Gideon, Gideonhi's army is routed, but then they regather their strength and they realize they can't quite fight against these people ever again. They try to make their way uh, out of the land and they're captured and opposed again. And Zemnariha, which is uh, the, the follower, the successor to Gideonhi, he is caught and executed. All of the, the Gadianton soldiers are then made prisoner. And there are literally no more opposing forces to the people of Nephi. They have this wonderful victory and this amazing, they're pulled from the fire. And God has created a miracle in their lives that they're no longer under threat of destruction. 
but it was the bloodiest conflict in their history. So they have been through this terrible ordeal, and this brings about such profound repentance that they are able to be blessed exceedingly. Even the prisoners uh, that were former Gadiantans, if they re- if they say they repent, that's all they have to do is make an oath and say they repent, and then they can be given land and they can be given equal rights. Now, I, I want to point this out. It's interesting that one of the promises of the Gadiantans to the Nephites is, if you say you will join us, we will make you equal with us and give you all these privileges. And yet it would have been impossible for them to keep that promise. And the Nephites, without making the promise, they fulfilled it. These All the Gadiantans had to do was to say that they would be equal with them and they would, uh, they would participate with them in being lawful members of a society. And the Nephites fulfilled that promise. Now, by this time, the Nephites have already long been reckoning their time, no longer by the reign of the judges, but by how long it has been since the time since the sign was given of Christ's birth. So that helps because we can easily align the, these dates now with our modern-day calendar. They're using the same event for their calendar as we are, which is the birth of Jesus Christ. The problem is that our calendar might be wrong. We don't know exactly, and this this might come as a surprise to some of you, we don't ex- know exactly what year Christ was born in. It may be that those people who came up with the calendar that we now observe had the year off by as many as four to six years. Uh, so this could be anywhere from 22, as it says in the beginning of the chapter, chapter 5. This victory over the Gadiantans could have happened anywhere from the year 22 to 26 A.D., interesting to think about. In any case, uh, 22 years after this, the 22nd year after this sign is given, then uh, the Nephites are now free, and they, they recreate their, this society, this wonderful, giving, equal society, and they're abundantly and richly blessed. And as I said at the beginning of our lesson, and in just about five years is all it takes, then they are brought low again. Uh, the Gadiantans are recreated among them, because the original cause was pride and class distinctions. The, the wealth that exists between some and the fact that they lord their wealth over the others is sort of the beginning of the conflict. And then this bleeds over into the justice system. So the, the fact that there's justice for some and not justice for others. Now you'll notice something very interesting here, and that is that there is not a clear alignment with today's politics. It seems like one of the main reasons for Nephite uh, society to dissolve is because of class distinctions, income inequality, as they would call it today, which is considered a great evil in today's world. It, It is one of the problems of Nephite society. On the other hand, one of the other chief causes of their disintegration was this elevation of victimhood and victim status. And therefore, you can see uh, elements of, of all of these philosophies in, in many political movements today, and there's not a clear alignment among what caused Nephite destruction uh, with our today's political parties necessarily. I think that's one of the dangers as we say, oh, there are political parties today that are perfectly aligned with the people of God, and then everyone who's not part of my party, they, they're against God's will. And you find that attitude on both, on you know, I say both, but on all sides of political questions. It's not necessarily true. There are definitely truths to be found in, in any political philosophy. If there was no truth to a political philosophy, it wouldn't, it wouldn't get very far. So it's important for us to find truth where we can and to be humble enough to accept it, even if it comes from people that we disagree with. And secondly, it's important for us to be courageous enough to face the lies in our own philosophy, even if it comes from people that we do agree with. Uh, And even if uh, opposing that lie means uh, going against our own party, our own interests, our own candidate uh, in in such a way that our, our side might lose influence, Uh, being courageous and being humble. Those are the two opposing uh, internal forces that I think cause us to get too political with each other, and it definitely hurt the Nephites. What happens then to the Nephites? What's their ultimate fate? Well, next week we're going to deal with how their 
physically destroyed, but we've been dealing for weeks and weeks now with how they are spiritually destroyed. Satan has been able to, each time they humble themselves and are converted to the Lord, he's been able to undo that conversion. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that process. I think that's the most important and profitable thing we can do with the rest of our time. In 3 Nephi chapter 6, verse 16, it said, And thus Satan did lead away the hearts of the people to do all manner of iniquity. Therefore they had enjoyed peace but a few years. Now, one of the I think one of the things that has to be going on in Nephite society is that they don't actually believe in equality. One of the founding principles of the American Republic is we believe these truths to be self-evident that all men and we would say today all men and women, are created equal. So one of the bedrock philosophies of modern Western civilization is that all people everywhere are equal. Now we find this principle also in the laws of Mosiah. You'll remember early on in the book of Alma, it is said that there was a law that nobody should be unequal. In other words, and and this was almost synonymous, the statement that everybody should be equal, it was almost synonymous with the idea that people could choose what they believed. No one would be forced to be part of any particular religion because all men were equal. That's the way that it, it expressed that idea in the Book of Alma. And what do we find each time that there is a group of dissenters from the Nephites? What is their goal? Their, their intermediate goal, you might say. Their ultimate goal is to undo the church of God and to, and to follow Satan. But their intermediate goal is to establish a king over them. This is always the first thing that they try to do. And establishing a king is an explicit statement of inequality. Putting a king over you is is saying without any sort of guesswork involved that at least one person is better than everyone else. And generally, the, the urge to put a king over them was so that they could be just under the king, but above everyone else. So it was usually these lesser functionaries in the government uh, the, the lesser judges who wanted to put a king over the people, and then they could be what we might call nobles or uh, gov- governors or intermediate kings, right? Lesser people, but were still rulers. And that was always the promise. This person who put himself up as candidate for king was always promising to these people who had a little bit of power, I'll give you more power. In other words, let's institute a great deal of what you might call institutional inequality. Sure, the laws of Mosiah might say that everyone needs to be equal, but let's make us more equal. Let's make ourselves more equal than everyone else. Let's make sure that uh, we're the ones who interpret the laws, who can let each other off the hook whenever we need to. This kind of attitude resurfaces anytime there's conflict, anytime there's pride. So the it's interesting that our peace, modern day peace, has been much more long lasting than the peace of the Nephites. And I, and I credit that to this bedrock principle that all men and women are created equal. This idea has found its way into our hearts. We all believe it. We embrace it. We know, deep down, we know that it's true. And the Nephites, it seems like among the Nephites, only the righteous were willing to accept it. The, the wicked and those who were in and out of the church, they were willing to jettison this idea at a very slight provocation. They wanted to have people be unequal as long as they could be on the receiving end of those benefits. When the people feel this way, then the situation, the, the society is ripening, as the scriptures call it, ripening for destruction. And in two cases, two notable cases, what needed to happen was some sort of evidence that the government is no longer capable of enforcing the law. You'll remember that in the time before Third Nephi became the chief judge. Uh, the, the chief judge is killed by these Gadiantans. He's assassinated. And then the entire society dis- disintegrates into, into um, a battle with the sword. We talked about this just last week. We see that again here. The chief judge is murdered. And within a short time, the entire society, and, th- and, and in this particular case, the entire government falls apart and people gather themselves into tribes. Now, The idea that our government is no longer capable of enforcing its laws is very important. If government can't enforce laws, it means no one is safe. If no one is safe, it means you cannot go out and work and expect to reap the the benefits of working. You can go out into your fields and you might plant crops, and those crops may even grow up. But as soon as you 
as soon as you gather them, as soon as you have a harvest, then somebody can come along and take them. So why would you plant? Why would you weave? Why would you raise flocks if you don't think you're going to gain the benefit of what you work to create? If you, if you can't provide for your family, then you're not going to spend all year sacrificing to get this harvest at the end of the growing season. And then if Nephites showed that they would rather break into tribes than follow a government that they don't believe can keep them safe enough to work. The reason I point that out is we are seeing this very kind of manifestation of lawlessness today. We are seeing, in the United States at least, we're seeing a seeding of power to those who want to create chaos rather than those who are willing to enforce the laws. Now, it may be true that laws are unjust. uh, And in a society that believes in law, what they will then do is make use of the provisions within the law that allow it to be changed. When people don't trust the law, then chaos, then chaos reigns, and generally people then will say, well, I'm not going to support a government that can't keep me safe enough that I can work, that I can feed my family, that I can take care and provide for those that I love. This is what happened to the Nephites, and it fractured their entire society. Now, incidentally, they had been going for a long time the way that they were here in 3 Nephi. They'd been going that way over 100 years. And before that, under Mosiah and his, uh, his father Benjamin, his father Mosiah, they'd been going in very similar fashion with equal rights for all for very close to 200 years, which is, <laughs> which is quite interesting for um, those Americans uh, among my listening audience, but um, for anyone listening, right? Within living memory, no one had known any different. And yet... Their entire society was capable of being destroyed in a few short years because people had entirely lost their confidence in the government because of the wicked people among them, because they had all invested in this idea that we can allow chaos to reign. And my point of that is, before Jesus Christ comes again, we are going to see drastic changes in the way that our world is governed. And allowing chaos to reign is a big part of those changes. These are attitudes that each of us listening, each of us who believes in the Book of Mormon, the truths of the Book of Mormon, and the example of the Book of Mormon, these are ideas that each of us should resist, should fight against with everything that we have. Uh, just, just the same way these prophets did. Mosiah was a humble, uh, King Mosiah II was a humble follower of God, and he instituted laws, earthly laws, that were meant to preserve in, in code the the equality of people that was felt only philosophically or in principle. And the same is true of our modern laws. They may not be perfect. In fact, I don't know that any system of laws has ever been perfect. This is a fallen world, and we will be uh, creating our laws by trial and error until Jesus Christ reigns personally on the earth. Nevertheless, opposing the rule of law itself is of a different quality than opposing laws, individual laws. Opposing the rule of law itself is a satanic tactic, and it is a satanic philosophy, especially when the underlying philosophy of those laws is intent, or the intent of those laws is to codify the idea that people are created equal. When that is the underlying intent of the law, then undermining the rule of law is a satanic act. And that's just, that's made clear in the Book of Mormon, especially here in the Book of Third Nephi. I want to finish by reading something that uh, the church put out. You'll all be familiar with it. The church put out 25 years ago this month. It's called The Family, A Proclamation to the World. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But in the second to last paragraph, the proclamation of the family says, We warn that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse or offspring, or who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. Further, we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. If you have ever wondered, where are the modern prophets saying, repent or be destroyed? Uh, we, have twi- we have a 25-year-old warning that says that certain behaviors bring upon people the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. There are many people, I see this as uh, quite a consistent meme on social media, that 2020 has been an awful year. We, off, we obviously have suffered 
many calamities. There's been political unrest, racial unrest. There's been a, a worldwide pandemic. There's been economic destruction. Uh, recently, this week in Salt Lake, we had a windstorm that was hurricane force, and it knocked out our power for several days. We have had earthquakes and fires and other natural disasters the world over. The pace of them has accelerated, and obviously all of us are feeling this particular year a, a bit more than most. The feeling I had this week as my wife and I dealt with an extended power outage was one of gratitude, because I knew that there were t crews working around the clock to restore power to my house. And I thought, I'm so grateful to God for showing me what it's like to be without power, to be without um, so many of the things that I take for granted so that I can wake up. I know that my power will be restored this time, but perhaps within my lifetime, perhaps uh, who knows when, well, there will come a time, at some point we know it's coming, when that power is not coming back on. There will come a time when Jesus Christ comes, or preceding the time, when Jesus Christ returns to the earth to rule and reign, when we will be put to a trial that we haven't seen before. If we want to know what it's like, I think it's very instructive to look what the world was like the last time Jesus Christ came to earth. And we can then understand that Satan will focus his energies on destroying respect for the family, the rule of law, the equality of men and women, the balanced need for both humility and courage, and the overriding importance of listening to prophets when they call upon us to repent. And so if we now would like to understand what God has in store for us and what he would like us to do, reading these first seven chapters of the book of 3 Nephi teaches us all of these principles, and I pray that we will heed them because there will come a time when it is too late. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.